Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Over the last 15 years of parenting, my life as a father of boys has coincided with the ascension of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, not the ascension of comic book heroes. Those have been around just about as long as America. My father's generation read those stories and was inspired by those heroes in comic books. And then I and and some of you in campy TV shows. And now Marvel has done what happens when Disney does anything. They take it and they make it really good. They've made those fantastic. And as we've all kind of re-met, you know, Tony Stark and Iron Man, Bruce Banner and the Hulk, the superhero over the years of watching these with my boys, who's probably resonated most with me is Spider-Man, because he didn't land on the earth superhuman like Superman. I mean, he came, he seemed to get it for free, because like he was born on Krypton and stuff's different here, and so he's Superman. But Spider-Man spent years as an ordinary schmo, and you like suffered the same slings and arrows of middle school fortune that I did, you know, where he was gangly and awkward and, and kind of smart, but, but wasn't good at talking to girls and tripped over himself sometimes. And then, as it turns out, he got bitten by a radioactive spider and woke up the next morning completely transformed, right? Super strong, could stick to the ceiling, and was miraculously somehow unnaturally brave as well. And I think the reason those stories endure generation after generation is they speak to a fantasy in our hearts that we can somehow cheat the system, that there is a, there's a, a life hack, as the kids say, and we can just get there all at once. I want what Superman, I mean, I want what Spider-Man got, right? But All of us who have lived a little while know that life in Jesus doesn't work that way. It's less of an overnight transformation, and it looks more like growing slowly good. And that's our title this morning. Last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about the hope that's found in Jesus' resurrection, that it wasn't a one-time thing, the exception that proves the rules, so we can rally behind this guy that cheated death, but rather it was the inauguration of a new era of restoration. Jesus was firstborn from among the dead, and his experience could be our experience too. And that culminated in this verse in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, in Christ, you are a new creation. That's what this means. You've become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And the way I think my mind translates that through years of Christian living is the old life is gone, the new life is here and installed because I wish it were that way. I want it to be like Spider-Man where I give my life to Christ, I get bit by a radioactive spider and then I'm the new guy. But the new life at, resur- at resurrection was just begun, right? That weekend was the hinge of history. Jesus put an end to the old order of things where sin and death reigned supreme and everybody was capped and powerless by it. He said it is finished, that order. And with his resurrection, a new era began. And so when we die with Christ, we begin to become new, but in an instant fulfillment age, in a post 
modern, post-Christian, soon to be post-pandemic, post-everything generation, we've learned to want it now and want it good. In an age where one-day delivery from Amazon bolstered that company to the largest in the world, and yet was unsatisfactory, and now we're looking to live in places where you can have it in one hour. We wish instinctively that God would make us new overnight as well. But God's restoration doesn't work that way, does it? God's restoration is almost always a progressive work. That's how authentic hope tends to unfold. Eugene Peterson, my, one of my pastor heroes who's with the Lord now in his wonderful book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, speaks of hope this way. He wrote, hoping, it's not dreaming, it's not like wishful thinking, or spinning an illusion or a fantasy. Hope means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. And so that's what we're going to look at, how God's way works over the course of the next several weeks. In this series, we're going to look at deep at a passage in Galatians chapter 5. So this morning, by way of introduction, we're going to take a quick survey of this passage. Starting in verse 16, the Bible says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. So this is a sort of thesis, a topic sentence, if you will, for the passage that's going to guide our discussions for the next several weeks. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sin sinful nature desires. So these two forces are constantly fighting each other. As long as we follow Jesus on earth, will have these two forces at work pulling on us in opposite directions. Popular culture has long held out this trope of a, a little angel on one shoulder, right, and a little devil on the other. Maybe they look like us. Maybe they look like Homer. But apocryphal as that philosophy might be, it's not altogether far from the truth, right? There is an old me that still lingers and operates in me. Scripture says you have no obligation, Romans 8, to the sinful nature any longer, but you do still have an invitation, right? And sometimes we take it up and we go back that way. And then there's a new me being renewed by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in my inner being who is pulling me that direction. 
That's why the Apostle Paul, who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament himself in a moment of transparency, can say in Romans 7, the stuff I want to do, I really want to do. It's not like I want to want to do it or my Sunday school teacher wants me to do it, but I often don't do it. And the stuff I don't want to do, I really don't want to do. I hate it. I know it makes me feel terrible later, but I sometimes do it. Ah, the plight. And that's us. These forces work in us in tandem. As long as we follow Jesus here on earth. The passage continues in verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, it kind of plays out both paths. The results are very clear. They're obvious. You don't need a seminary class to understand this part. There's sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I think the wild parties is funny. This is an exhaustive list of really bad things and wild parties. <laughs> Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces a different kind of fruit in your lives. Both impulses, both versions of you, if you will, will produce fruit. The fruit of the one is a well-worn path. It's very clear and obvious. The fruit of the other, a little more subtle, a little more rare in this day and age. The fruit that the Holy Spirit produces is love and joy peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Apostle Paul likens our ways, how we live, to fruit because he's writing to people who have spent their whole lives in a culture predicated on an agrarian economy. It's said by theologians, the Bible is written for you, but it's not written to you. It was written to people who instinctively got what he's talking about, two different kinds of fruit. But the implication is that our ways grow slowly as a product of something more elemental. Like imagine that uh, you, you have a tree, an apple tree. This happened to Mari and me. We bought a house when the kids were young that was built in the 70s and it had a, tr a mature apple tree. And uh, it kind of hung over the fence. The neighbors would come and gather apples. It produced a lot of apples, a a an overwhelming amount of apples actually, such that, you know, you have the leaf cleaning day in the fall. We had an apple cleaning day where we had to go and pick up all the rotten apples. And of course, the boys would chuck them at each other and laugh until somebody got pelted with a rotten apple in the head, all part of the childhood experience in our house. But if you didn't, they rotted the grass and they stunk and all that. Overwhelmed with apples. Imagine you move into this house and you, in the first couple of years, you make apple pies and apple bread. And, and then you're like, hey, you know what? I don't really, if I'm honest, like apples. Like my mom always put them on my lunch and it's, and now I'm an adult. I don't want apples. I want an orange tree. Now that I understand that you can grow your own fruit, I want, an or I want oranges. So you go and you research how oranges work and then you, you, you find out what you got to do to adapt our soil to this climate, I mean, uh, uh, our climate and the soil to this uh, exotic type of tree. And you, you're, 
finally at the day where you dig up the ground and you put in all the soil preparation and you have your irrigation ready and you plant your orange tree and you have to put two sticks in the ground with wire to hold it up, right? And what you've got the next day and the next month and the next year is still a bunch of apples in your yard. And you're like, you know what? I'm putting that apple tree to death. And so you read how to do that on, you watch a YouTube video, you drill down into the soil around the roots and you like inject salt. But there's still apples growing, right? They don't shrivel up and die or disintegrate. Like, wouldn't it be nice if you killed a mothership and all the alien invaders just die? Like that's every outplot for the sci-fi movies. But it doesn't work that way. Even after you poison the dumb thing, there's still apples all over your yard. And the orange tree is fighting for survival in Colorado's semi-arid climate, let alone not making you any fruit. And so it goes over the course of years. The apple tree, you stop watering. You stop treating the soil. The, the apples are fewer and scarce. And the orange tree one year produces oranges, like two. <laughs> and each kid gets one and you're like, that's it. But then over time, you get more oranges, and then there comes a day when your yard is filled with oranges, and you're having to harvest those things and clean them up on leaf day two. That's how Scripture likens our growth in Christ and our growth away from the fruit of our old self. We're like trees growing fruit for better and for worse. Jesus restores us this way. He doesn't wave the fruit wand or sprinkle the dust and magically make us good. He grows us slowly good. That's the way his restoration plays out in our lives. He restores us little by little and bit by bit from the inside out. He starts with renovating our hearts. You're like, well, if Jesus is wanting to save the world and change it and fill it with his life, why not do it quicker? Well, if that were the question and that were Jesus's rubric, friends, I don't think we'd be in the equation at all. Angels, cherubim, perpetually bowing elders at the throne, somebody would do this way better than us. Jesus is into slow and inefficient if he's into us, right? And so it's his way not to hit the commander's override and change the world from the outside in, but to change the world by changing individuals who follow Jesus from the inside out and their fruit grows until it overflows and all the neighbors are gathering the apples out of your yard and you're happy for them to take them because you couldn't possibly eat them all. That's Jesus's way. And his greatest interest is not in increasing the gentleness quotient on South Broadway. His greatest interest is your heart. See, we're not machines of output. We're not slave workers. We're daughters and sons of God. When you are restored to him, you are restored to that identity and he cares about you. Firing on all cylinders, living in full color, being who you were made to be. Luke 6, Jesus makes this clear, a good tree he said, can't produce bad fruit. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are 
never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from brambles. A good person produces good things, not from the good thing fairy coming, and not from having attended a conference and fallen on the ground and rolled around. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say, what you do, what you produce flows from what is in your heart. We both like and hate this truth, I think. But be that as it may, Jesus doesn't come peddling some flashbang religious experience to change us from the outside in. We sometimes peddle that to one another. I've been around the church world for a long time and I've learned some from all the different ways that it's done. But I've found that all the traditions have this in common, a version where people say, if you come to our blank thing, read my book, buy my 40-week course, come to my conference, buy my oil, whatever, then you get to shortcut the system. It's like a cheat code, right? A life hack. Hack! That sounded, I sounded like the middle schooler whose vernacular I was borrowing. A life hack. <laughs> Sorry for the involuntary voice crack. A life hack. I've now said that four times in a row. If you said life hack four times in a row and had it start sounding like weird, life hack. A life hack, right? Where, where was I? Oh, religious experience, where you don't have to grow slowly good. You just have to do our thing. Come to my conference. Receive this anointing. Get that impartation. And then, you know, boom, all your problems go away. That would be nice if it were true. The problem is it doesn't work very often, and it's not Jesus' way. And so what ends up happening is when... Three days later, the anointing evidently has worn off and I'm back to being the same SOB that I was before the conference. I don't want to say it. So it's like this emperor's new clothes phenomenon results in the church. Nobody wants to say it didn't really work. And then you just end up slinking away and going away from the church because it didn't work. And what you're told, the messaging in mass is, if it doesn't take, it's because you're not doing it right. You're not doing religion right. And so all it becomes is another performance metric. Jesus came and died on a cross because we cannot perform enough. We can't get that right. Now, am I saying don't go to conferences and don't read books? Of course not. I'm simply saying there is no life hack. There is no cheat code. Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you could be forgiven and free. That happens slowly from the inside out. Now, here's the thing. We both love and hate that truth. It's like our spiritual frenemy, right? Everybody, I'll tell you what, the number one without... By, by a mile, without question, the number one most frequent pastoral care conversation I've had in 20 years of church ministry is having been hurt by the church because of a variety of reasons, but usually some variation on the theme of legalism. You know, they, they beat us over the head to not do this or act that way. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then they didn't live it themselves. And so we're all sort of trying not to throw the baby out with that bathwater. And so we, we, we say we hate that and we revile it and it makes us go away from church. And I get that, except that we also want it. 
We also want to be the one for whom it's true, that we don't have to grow slowly good. We want some flashbang religious experience. And that's what aligns with the promises of our culture. Pastor Eugene continues, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. You know, even that word, holiness, gives some of us the willies because it's associated in our minds with legalism, with outside-in righteousness. But holiness is becoming like Jesus. It's the process of Jesus making us new from the inside out. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. I am making them ongoingly so. The work is restoration. Sometimes when we hear I'm making things new, our mind sort of switches it up and we, we believe that he's making all things different. Like how I am is unsatisfactory to him. You are made in his image. I think it is highly unlikely that God would make you in his own image and decide that the way he made you is not good. There is nothing not good in the image of God. What's not good is the distortion of the image of God that sin has created. And so when he says, I'm making all things new, what he's doing is restoring them. Have you ever restored or known someone that's restored an old car or an old house or maybe a work of art? You're not looking to scratch what the great master did and paint a new picture. You're looking to bring back its original glory. That's what Jesus is looking to do in you. To bring back your original glory, to restore you, is to return you to your manufacturer's specifications. Romans 11, the Spirit of, sorry, Romans 8, verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He doesn't visit you. He doesn't come like the holiness fairy and give you a dose at a conference. He lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies. So this doesn't end in your heart. You're like, well, that's great that he wants to heal my broken heart, but I need him to heal my broken employment or my broken relationship. All things he's making new, right? He'll give life to your mortal body and everything that concerns it. He does it, though, by the same Spirit living within you. The Spirit of God is his action agent who from the inside out changes us. Living with Jesus means the Holy Spirit's healing, maturing work progressively, little by little and bit by bit, slowly over time. It means experiencing his life, the life of God, the abundant, overflowing life that Jesus promised for us in every area. Living with Jesus looks like growing slowly good. A little bit, a little bit more. 
sometimes steep growth curve like our kids who have growing pains because they're an inch taller than they were last week, sometimes plateaued for what feels like half a decade. But you zoom out over time and your life looks like the stock market. Little by little, bit by bit, growing slowly good. Kind of reminds me of the advertisement, the dude from Men's Warehouse. You're going to like what you look like. I guarantee it. You're going to look like Jesus. And so the passage concludes, those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross, have crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, then let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Having died with Christ, the old is finished That tree may keep bearing fruit for a little while, but you don't belong to it. You're not limited to it. Everything is being made new. Therefore, as the passage begins, it ends. Let's follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every area of our lives. As another translation puts it, let's keep in step with Him and grow slowly good together. We've sentenced our old self to death. You drilled down, injected salt into the roots. That thing's going to die. That fruit's going to dwindle. And you're alive in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is renewing you from the inside out. And that fruit is going to thrive. So what would it look like to follow the leading of God the Spirit living in your heart in every area of your lives? That's the question we're going to ask over the next several weeks as we drill down on this subject. The world is full of the other kind of fruit. Paul was very right. It's obvious, self-evident. You need no sermons to understand how that grows. It's a well-worn path, but the fruit that the Holy Spirit grows when we follow his leading in every area of our lives, it's more rare. It's the path less traveled in this world. I I told you I have lived the best years of my life with two boys who are dear friends with each other and couldn't be more different. One has always been the Chick-fil-A kid. I'm good with a burger and fries or chicken sandwich. The other is like, let's go for shawarma. Like what nine-year-old kid does that? Um, and, And that's just their personality, still is. Well, since he was little, that son would go to the grocery store with mom and she'd be, you know, getting the bananas from the organic bananas that aren't too green and he'd come over with like a dragon fruit. You know that one little section in the grocery store, that one little stand that has the exotic fruits? And she, he'd be like, can we get this? And she said, why? He's like, because I've never had it. And so Mari would come home with like a kumquat or something and then the whole family would try it and we've done this for years he still does it at 17 brings home exotic fruit we we try the star fruit or whatever doesn't grow indigenously here um but god made it and so we try it that's kind of how the fruit that the holy spirit produces works god made it for you, but it doesn't grow in this soil of this fallen world. It's a rare fruit. It's exotic indeed, but man, does it make you beautiful.
It's who God made you to be, reflecting his image and his glory and shining his hope into a city that's lost in darkness and in desperate search of hope. And that's who you are. So that's where we're going to go together. Make sense? Sound good? You with me? All right. If you're with me, stand up. If you're not, stand up anyway. Let's get out of here. Father, in, in Jesus' name, thanks for your faithfulness to us. Thanks for the promise of new life. And Lord, thanks for the way that you do it and how oddly it dignifies us. We're not machines of righteousness, of renovation production. We are your glorious ones. Yeah, that's amazing. Friends, some of you, as you hear this, in Christ, you're a new creation. You're like, yeah, I see how that works. I don't know if that's me. And what we're talking about here is following Jesus, not taking a religious pill or buying into some sacred order. We're talking about following Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus and let him grow you slowly good, heal your heart, change your life, you're welcome here. You can belong in that place on day one. We've told you about Alpha, and that course is just for that purpose. You can come right where you are, bring your hardest questions, your, your doubts and fears, your um, wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater because of your religious hurt. You can bring it, and it's real, and it's valid. The questions, ironically, that are least sociable to ask in church, the place that we should be asking them, Alpha is a place where you can belong and every question is met with dignity. We're starting week two this week. Week one was an important introduction, but this is probably the last time for this iteration where you can jump on the train. It's Tuesday nights. It's an hour of your time or so, and it's well worth it. You'll find the information at denverunited.com. would love for you to walk that journey with us. And some of you are like, no, I know what to believe. I just, I haven't believed. I, I have said it maybe, but I haven't lived it. And I need, I need a fresh start. And the great thing about Jesus is that wherever you are, that fresh start is in front of you. You don't get one shot at it. He said, if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's just pray this together. And if that's you, and if you want to come back to Jesus, you belong. You're with family. You're not remedial. You're not going to be in the doghouse. Just come on home. Just pray this in your heart with me. Jesus, we believe. We believe that you are the Son of God and that he raised you from the dead and that you can raise us from the dead and give us new life. And we confess that you are Lord. We choose to follow you, to come after you, to be second in importance. Help us to know how to, to live. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and with your love and grow us slowly good. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 